0: Meet Rachel, she's dealing with a ton of stuff, digestive problems, sleep issues, on top of headaches, psoriasis, and skin rashes. Because her symptoms are so diverse, she's seen a ton of specialists, the dermatologist, gastroenterologist, neurologist, and an endocrinologist. She tried steroids, acid lowering medications, and an SSRI, but not much has changed. She was so frustrated because she was getting the runaround and each doctor recommended another doctor she should see, but they didn't communicate with each other and no one tried to connect her symptoms, which is when she came to see me. When I considered all her symptoms and looked at her diet, I saw that the food she was eating all had something in common. And I had a feeling that this had something to do with her health mystery. Every year, Thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of the issues that Rachel was having and while they may not seem like they're related, they actually were. And I am so excited to have Dr. Beth O'Hara back on the show today. Beth is a functional naturopath and the owner of mass Cell 360 a functional practice specializing in root cause approach to mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, and related conditions such as oxalates, mold toxicity, and chemical sensitivities. Beth and I actually had a great interview where we discussed oxalates a few months back, and she's just such a wealth of information. Welcome back, Dr. Beth.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here with you. And I just love how we can team up to help people with these mystery conditions. Yeah, for sure. And I am so excited to get into all of the details
0: of histamines today to really help my listener understand exactly what this means, how they may know if they have this issue, and what they can do about it. So when we think about histamines, we often think about allergies and antihistamine medications like claritin and springtime, but It goes way, way deeper than that. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, can you tell us what is histamine
1: intolerance? Sure. So I I love how you opened up about that. Often we think about histamines, the role in allergies, and that's the the most common role that's known, especially because people think about if they have allergy symptoms, they take antihistamines. histamine has tons and tons of roles in the body, including regulating estrogen levels, regulating sleep weight cycles, it acts as a neurotransmitter, it activates stomach acid and has a role in digestion. And we could just go on and on. And histamine intolerance happens when the body the body builds up high levels of histamine that the histamine degrading enzymes can't keep up with. And so those histamine levels get above a certain threshold and will cause different types of symptoms associated with histamine intolerance. And these could be things like um, rashes that we heard in Rachel's case. They can be GI issues. It can trigger headaches and migraines, can trigger other kinds of skin issues like like hives. Now, histamine is produced from the mast cells. And the mast cells are a frontline immune cell that we'll want to talk about some more. There are other ways that our histamine levels can become elevated, and mostly from eating high histamine foods. And these are going to be foods like pineapple and strawberries and spinach and processed foods, um, packaged foods. Fish, particularly in seafood, can be really high in histamines. And there's a, a number of other foods that are involved. But it's really about when those histamine levels are at a point that our major histamine-degrading enzymes just can't keep up with. And I like to think of it as kind of like a, a sink metaphor. So if you have a sink with a drain and you turn the faucet on and what's coming out of the faucet is histamine and the drain, you want to be draining that away fast enough that the sink never overflows. But if the drain is too small, meaning you don't have enough enzymes or the water is running too fast... Then that sink is going to overflow. And that's where we get these histamine-related symptoms. So
0: with that, and it sounds like there's a lot of different symptoms. And you know, I know we'll get into all the foods in more detail and what we could do about that, but what are some of the contributing factors? You know, you mentioned that if the histamine degrading enzymes are not, if there's not enough of them, so is there something that creates that, or are there other factors that make someone have this intolerance?
1: That's a great question. So there are going to be a few different factors. There can be genetic issues with the genes that code for those histamine degrading enzymes. So those genes are going to be ABP1 and AOC1. Those genes produce something called diamine diamine oxidase. And diamine oxidase, there are supplements on the market now for that. And this is the major histamine degrading enzyme in the gut, And then there's another enzyme called HNMT. And so if we have some significant variants there, we have issues with a pathway called methylation that's involved with histamine breakdown. Those are some of the things that could contribute. But any kind of GI issue, so if there's GI inflammation, we talked about with Rachel that there were some microbiome imbalances, things like that will affect the production of that DAO, diamine oxidase enzyme in the gut, and that can contribute to a histamine overload situation. Also, there are a lot of medications that block that enzyme, particularly antibiotics, different kinds of pain relievers. morphine is a good example, but even just over-the-counter pain relievers can block that enzyme. So sometimes people are doing just fine, and then they do a course of antibiotics and they have histamine intolerance, or they were doing fine and then they got food poisoning that affected the gut, or they got some other kind of GI imbalance. These are some of the typical ways that we see this show up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm so glad you're
0: mentioning the gut, because for a lot of people it isn't something that they've had their whole life. And that's why it's so confusing because they're fine. And then it seems like all of a sudden that they're developing all of these issues. And that makes sense that, you know, it's coming from the gut and it could be something as simple as food poisoning or a round of antibiotics that then creates that imbalance. Um, Now, what about mast cell activation. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that differs and what are some of the symptoms that are associated with that?
1: Yes. So this is the other way we can end up with histamine issues, but other types of issues as well. So we talked before about how these mast cells, these frontline defender cells of the immune system, they produce histamine and they also produce over a thousand different types of mediators of inflammation. And that's their job. That's their role in the body. So these immune cells are out there sensing if there are viruses or bacteria or parasites or mold and also sensing for different kinds of toxins. And their job is when they find those things, they surround it with inflammation-producing molecules, and then they call to the other immune cells to come in and do the rest of the process to clean that up and get it out of the body. So the most common example that most people have had some kind of experience with is if you have a cut and maybe you didn't get it cleaned out fast enough and it gets red and puffy, that'll be the mast cells producing histamine and some of these other mediators and these mast cells are fascinating because they can release these mediators selectively depending on what's going on in their environment and then they have all of these receptors on the outside that's how they know what's in the environment so when something docks on there so we can have histamine intolerance if the mast cells are overproducing producing histamine But then we're likely to have overproduction of some of these other mediators as well, prostaglandins, interleukins, cytokines are something that we've been talking about um, globally a lot lately. And the mast cells and some of the other cells are part of that process of producing those cytokines. So mast cell activation happens, and there's different types of mast cell disorders, but the most common one is mast cell activation syndrome. And this happens because we've had chronic exposure to toxins, which is common for the majority of people anymore. We have toxins in the air, the water. We're surrounded by electromagnetic fields. And also, if there are chronic underlying infections or a combination of those, eventually the mast cells, their programming, if you think of it that way, can become a little dysregulated or it becomes... It's almost like there's a a bug in the programming and now they're over responding and they're overreacting to all kinds of things. So I like to think of them like the guards of the castle gate and they should be letting the people that bring food in and letting people that are making deliveries come in. But then if an enemy comes to the gate, they keep it out. When we have mast cell activation disorders, especially like mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cells start shooting at everything, and they're not fine-tuned anymore. So they're not just shooting at the enemies, they're shooting at butterflies.
0: Yeah, they get PTSD because they're tired of fighting everything all the time. Yes, yeah. So is there a way to know uh, that that is happening? Are there any tests that people can do? Um, You know, how would someone know that they
1: have this syndrome? This is why it's been so confusing, is because there, you can have... all kinds of different types of symptoms that people think aren't related. So we think about Rachel, and she's having headaches, and then she has psoriasis, which is an autoimmune disorder, and then she's got stomach pains and GI issues. Those seem unconnected, but the mast cells are in almost all the tissues in the body, and are certainly in all of the systems in the body. So one of the aspects of the diagnostic criteria is that you have to have symptoms in two or more systems. So when we look at that, that could be you have GI symptoms and you have headaches or you have sleep issues and you have rashes, any kind of combination. So you could have heart palpitations and um, asthma. So that's one of the aspects of the diagnostic criteria. One of the other aspects is that antihistamines or some kind of histamine-lowering or mast cell-supportive medications or supplements decrease the symptoms. Now, one of the problems with that part of the criteria is that most of the antihistamine and mast cell-stabilizing medications have mast cell triggers in them, things like dyes, titanium dioxide. So, that's a Difficult assessment point because many people will also react to those medications. And then the third piece of the official diagnostic criteria is that you have to have a positive result for one of the mast cell mediators. Now, this diagnostic criteria was just um, accepted. So, we we only had mast cell activation syndrome accepted as an official diagnosis in 2016. So this is a new diagnostic criteria that's still in evolution. And there are different tests that people can have done. Some of the most common ones are tryptase and methyl histamine. So n methylhistamine histamine, that's a urinary marker, has to be run 24 hours, has to be kept chilled the entire time, has to be kept on ice when it arrives at the lab, and it has to be run very, very quickly. So all of these mast cell mediators are up and down. So whether we're looking at tryptase or prostaglandins, different cytokines, they're going to be up and down the bloodstream. And it could be highly elevated and 15 minutes later, gone again. Mm. So this is a major issue with this diagnostic criteria. Unfortunately, there aren't any really reliable tests at this point in time. And that's why it's important for people to look at their symptoms and then to take a look at, is there anything else going on that could explain those symptoms. So, so far this has been looking at excluding other possibilities. But I really encourage people to take a look at, we have a symptom survey at MassCell360.com, and people can step themselves through. And that symptom survey was developed out of the research of the most common mass activation syndrome symptoms. And then people can score and see where they fall in there and see if it makes sense to take a look. This has become a major, major issue. And the estimates are between 9 and 17% of the general population are dealing with mast cell activation syndrome. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. And then in the chronically ill population, we're looking at 50% or more people with mast cell activation because anywhere you have inflammation, you're going to have mast cell involvement. Right.
0: And for everyone listening, I will post all of those links in the show notes so you guys can look at the different symptoms and go through and score and see where you are. Now, Beth, what about if someone doesn't qualify, say, for mast cell activation syndrome, where they don't have all of the points? um, Is there a way to tell if someone has histamine intolerance? Would they be similar questions that they would answer? Or are there any other
1: blood markers, urine markers that you would use to help to determine that? Yeah, those are great questions. I usually start off with seeing if we can rule out histamine intolerance. And so mainly having people work on eating a lower histamine diet and see if we can do a few gentle things to support those pathways, work on the diamine oxidase, work on the methylation if that's needed. And I like to look at diamine oxidase levels so you can get that as a blood test and then look at a methylation panel and see what the SAMe levels are. SAMe is needed for degrading histamine. But if we go through and we support those things, and then we still have a lot of symptoms, I'm going to start to suspect mast cell activation. But also, if there's any kind of autoimmunity, so like psoriasis that Rachel had, autoimmunity is highly linked with mast cell activation because the mast cells are the orchestrators of the immune system one of the main orchestrators so if you think about you have an orchestra and the conductor something happens and he has a stroke and he's not staying on beat the whole symphony is going to get off beat as well and so that's that's part of that autoimmunity link right when we have a lot of significant symptoms if there's mold toxicity if there's a history of Lyme or other serious chronic illness then I'm going to go ahead and start to think down the mast cell activation road and what do we need to do to support that. So histamine tolerance generally is milder, mm-hmm. generally much easier to address and to deal with. Mast cell activation is much more complex because there's so many different types of triggers. Right. Right. And so basically what you're saying with
0: histamine intolerance is that you wouldn't necessarily do a questionnaire or test people. But if you suspect that that's an issue, you would have them lower their histamine and work on
1: the degrading enzymes to see if that helps. Right. Correct. And we might test the diamine oxidase levels and take a look at the methylation markers and see how those are looking.
0: And for methylation, you mentioned CME. Um What tests are you doing for that? Um, Do you ever do the whole blood uh, histamine test or are you doing the Genova, the SAM to STAR ratio?
1: I generally do the, the Genova methylation profile. So I like to see what's happening in the entire pathway. And my background is heavily into genetic analysis and I love biochemistry. So I like to really look in and see... And, and then compare it with micronutrients and the, the serum micronutrients levels in the blood and the levels inside the cell and see, oh, well, actually the potassium is really low and that's a cofactor in this part of the pathway. And so that may actually be why we have low SAMe. Gotcha. Gotcha. I love doing that too. It's real detective work to figure out all those pathways.
0: That's great. So let's talk about the diet piece a little bit, because I know that that's really a big thing. Obviously, because it's supporting the enzyme, supporting methylation is important. We could do that. There are certain nutrients, but the big part of that is going to be with reducing histamine foods. Um, I know you mentioned a few like strawberries and pineapple. Um, can you give us a couple more of like the biggies? And then of course, we'll post the whole list in the show notes as well.
1: Sure. So some of the biggest ones are going to spinach really big and spinach also high oxalate. Mm -hmm. I know we talked about that last time, but that one I harp on quite a lot because I have had a number of people come in who um, by a very well-meaning practitioner were told to do spinach smoothies Mm -hmm. and um, spinach is loaded with nutrients, but it's also loaded with anti-nutrients. And so spinach is one of those things that for most people, especially if you have histamine or oxalate issues, should be more of a condiment rather than a main course. So that's a big one. Processed foods are huge and things like smoked meats, um, hot dogs, pepperoni, those those types of meats, smoked salmon, fish, especially if it's been sitting in a refrigerator case. So a lot of people think, well, I want to buy as fresh as possible, so I'm going to buy fresh fish. But fish starts building in histamine levels very, very rapidly if it's not gutted within about 30 minutes of catch and then frozen right away. And about the only thing that that happens with regularly would be um, wild-caught salmon is usually frozen on the boat. So that's usually a lower histamine option. So those are some of the foods, things like ground meats. And meat can be a major trigger. So people that are histamine intolerant Or if you have mast cell activation, so people have mast cell activation, it's good to try a low histamine diet. It doesn't always help everyone because not everyone with mast cell activation actually has histamine intolerance, but most people with mast cell activation do. Then with the meats, what you want to do is get it frozen after slaughter. And usually the best place to find that is going to be like a local farmer, or there's some places online that specialize in that, like U.S. Wellness Meats. Hmm. Okay. That's great to know. If they're buying it fresh
0: and cooking it immediately, would that be okay? Or it's still an issue because it might be sitting at the store for a couple of days?
1: Depends on how sensitive someone is. So if someone has just some mild or moderate histamine intolerance, that's probably going to be fine. If somebody is as sick as I was, so I was itching constantly, continually had rashes, severe insomnia, horrible fatigue could barely get out of bed for several years and lots of gi issues diarrhea acid reflux so i have both severe histamine intolerance and severe mast cell activation sometimes would have anaphylaxis so for me i i would for a while i was calling wherever i was going to get my meat usually whole foods and finding out what day it was going to come in, and then I would show up as soon as the truck was unloaded and get that meat that was as fresh as it could be. Mm. But it might have been in transit for two or three days, and then it might have sat in a refrigerator case for a week before it got there. And that never really did it for me, but I'm more sensitive. So using places like U.S. Wellness Meats, local farmers, um, another great place is White Oak Pastures, They even have low histamine beef, beef that's not aged. So aging can be a factor as well. Another thing to be thinking about if people listening are concerned about histamine intolerance or mast cell activation is we have this huge push right now for lots of ferments and bone broth. Yes. And I'm not saying that these are bad foods. Like For the right people, these are fantastic healthy foods. But if you have histamine intolerance or mast cell activation, then these can get you in trouble. And this is how I really got in trouble with my health, was about 20 years ago, I really got into the Weston Price movement, which is a great movement and emphasizes you know, more how people ate primitively or how people eat in traditional cultures. Loads of ferments. So my kitchen looked a little bit like a laboratory. And I had, um, I was making kefir and I was making fermented kimchi and sauerkraut. And I was making my own kombucha. And my health just got worse and worse and worse. This was before I knew I had histamine intolerance and mast cell activation. And then bone broth, another one, the bone broth, any kind of long cooking or slow cooking like that will raise those histamine levels. So we just have to get creative. And that's why I've tried to build out lots of recipes to show people different things that they can do. How do you make a quick meat broth instead of a long cooked bone broth, get minerals in some different places. And we can really work around these things and get the symptoms down. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, what about if someone does get their meat from, let's say, USA
0: Wellness or... Um- You know something where it is very fresh and then they cook it and then after they cook it let's say they make a stew and they want to eat it for a couple of days is
1: that a no-no again depending on how sensitive people are but with the leftovers what i do is i freeze them right away into individual serving containers And both getting my meat frozen after slaughter and then freezing leftovers made a huge difference in my health. And I see it make a big difference in a lot of my clients who are dealing with histamine intolerance. So the longer something sits in the fridge, that histamine level is going to build. Even if it's, you know, a salad, not as quickly, meat more quickly, because everything has bacteria on it. We don't think of it, but bacteria produce histamines and that's part of that's why they ferments can be an issue or anything that's been aged
0: yeah so it sounds like fish produces the most if it sits and then meat and then uh, the other things would be after that
1: right there's actually um, histamine intolerance is not very recognized in the medical establishment but there is a condition called scromboid poisoning and that is histamine poisoning from super high levels. And the cases on that were from where people ate fish that had sat out too long or hadn't been under proper refrigeration. Usually doesn't happen in developed countries, usually in undeveloped where there's not as, as strict sanitary rules and regulations, but it has happened in um, more developed countries as well.
0: Mm, interesting, because you would think it would be like a food poisoning situation, but it's really more of that histamine overload, you're saying.
1: Exactly. And it's, it's lethal. Scromboid poisoning is very deadly. And again, not a very common thing, but I want to make the parallel that that is recognized in the medical establishment. And so if we think about everything on a spectrum instead of you know black or white, mm-hmm. then this is where we are. We're way on the other end of the spectrum, but still a concern. Yeah, for sure. Now, what about fish that's
0: canned, if it's canned right away? I know it's sitting in the can, but it's sealed,
1: I'm assuming airtight. So would that be an issue? That's a great question. It is still high histamine. And again, anytime you have meat sitting out of frozen, and even with freezing, you can't really freeze meat for more than about three to six months without histamine level starting to build you'll start to get bacteria so you can't keep meat frozen in a deep freezer for 10 years and it still be okay it's just that bacteria is going to grow so much more slowly but in the can you do get a buildup and things like sardines canned salmon canned tuna these will be high histamine as well any kind of canned meats Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. I know
0: sometimes people opt for those because of obviously a lot of the health benefits. And, you know, it's something that lasts a while, but that's great to know about the histamines and those. So, when you recommend reducing histamines, is it something that people should do? all at once or do it slowly? And I ask only because with things like oxalates, you know, we want to be very careful and do a little bit at a time. Is it the same issue here or is it something we can cut out as much as possible, as quickly as possible?
1: I rarely see issues with stopping histamines cold turkey. The only times I do see issues are when people start eating a lot more high oxalate foods, or they eat a lot more of another food that's triggering for them and they didn't realize that it was a trigger for them. But I don't tend to see issues strictly from the histamine side of reducing that quickly. What I do see is people really having a big change in their health with it. And I had a young girl, she was I think she was about 10 or 11 years old when we started working together and she was having anaphylaxis every day. And throat closing every time she ate oh goodness and it was just terrifying for her and her parents and so we started with the lower histamine diet and we also went ahead and went lower lectin which can be a mast cell trigger and within a very short period of time the anaphylaxis stopped now we had to work on the underlying issues which for her were mold toxicity but after she got those histamine levels down, didn't have another throat closing episode or anaphylactic episode. That's amazing. And that's
0: great to know that people can do that right away so that we could just get started and get going and it doesn't have to take a long time. So when you work on this with people and you do the diet first and then you're looking into the gut and then you're looking into methylation, you're looking into the enzymes, is there an order of how you would normally do it and what you support first or is it just depending on what
1: the person has? Well, part of it depends on what the person has. I really look at mold toxicity first and we think about the different triggers for mast cell activation mold toxicity is by far one of the biggest ones that I see in my practice. So that's one of the first places that I look, and I like to look at the gut. So I'll run a urinary organic acid test and a stool test to see what we have going on there because that's going to give us some information about if they can be making the diamine oxidase even without looking at genetics yet. So if there's a lot of gut inflammation, we know we may have a problem. And sometimes, depending on of the symptoms, I might go ahead and take a look at those diamine oxidase levels. If there's toxicity, like the mold toxicity, unless somebody is really struggling with a lot of high histamine symptoms, I'll typically look at methylation a little further down the road because things like mold toxicity will disrupt methylation so much sure and once we deal with the toxicity it usually starts to rebalance Mm -hmm. yeah and you know i actually
0: have a few episodes on molds and ways that people can test and see but while we're on the topic of mold is there a test that you like you know for both testing
1: the home and testing the body yes so i usually start with mold plates um, and I learned that the hard way. So when I started out looking at mold, I had a lot of people bring mold inspectors into their homes and they would spend 1200 1500 sometimes a few thousand dollars. Yeah. And I would know there was a mold issue and the mold inspectors would say there was nothing. And I learned that Now, there are some really good mold inspectors out there, so I'm not just bashing everybody. But the certification is minimal, and they're mostly looking at occupational-grade issues that would only cause this home to fail a building inspection. But they're not trained, unless they've done, you know, going above and beyond, they're not trained on this health level. So then I started running the ERMI tests, which were helpful and we're catching some. But I had this man in my practice who... He had started working with me, it's been a year and a half ago now. And when we started, he'd already had a mold inspector in. Mold inspector had told him there was no mold. So when we started working, I said, Well, I think we should look at mold. He said, I don't want to do it. I've already paid a lot of money. So we tried other things, kept spinning his wheels. And then we ran the Ermi test. Ermi test missed it. And I said, I. Nothing's making sense. I think you have mold toxicity, he had severe insomnia, had not slept more than 45 minutes at a time for two years, and uh, had had symptoms of histamine intolerance and mass cell activation. He actually lived locally. And so this is the last time I did this. I said, I'm going to come to your house and walk through. I'm very mold sensitive. I can tell you if there's mold. And I walked through. And when I got to the second floor, I could smell it. I say, no, there's a mold issue here. And so finally we ran, I talked them into running mold plates, which are inexpensive. And then we sent them off to the lab to be analyzed and had some of the highest levels of Aspergillus, which is really toxic, that the lab had ever seen, the highest I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. So that was a good learning experience for me to just start with those mold plates. So that's what, that's what I do now. Mm-hmm. And do, are you using Immunolytics or are you using, which
0: laboratory are Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh. Immunolytics. Yeah. Yeah. And they have great, they, I, what I love about them is they do a free 20 minute assessment with anybody that sends in plates for an analysis and you get an assessment with an environmental mold expert. So that's been very helpful for my clients to start to look at what the issue might be and how do we get started in in cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. And then for the mold toxin testing for the body, and this is one of the areas I really specialize in, I'm running, I actually run two panels simultaneously now. I used to just run Great Plains mycotoxin test, Mm -hmm. but their method is excellent for some of the mold toxins, some things like. Citrinin, mycophenolic, ochratoxin I see those show up very well in the Great Plains test, but they miss the, um, some of the more toxic ones. They miss aflatoxin, they miss gliotoxin, the trichothecines. and the real times lab, their method is better at that one, or those more toxic molds, but misses the ones that Great Plains is better at. Mm. So we get a more complete picture if we can. I like to look at them both together. And if there's mold toxicity in mass activation, that's the first thing that I address because it's going to disrupt the nervous system, it's going to disrupt the hormone system, it disrupts sleep, disrupts the digestive system as a huge dysregulator of the immune system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so obviously, if things come up in the home, people would
0: need to clean that up first and foremost. And then are there supplements or things that you like to use if they have mycotoxin? Is it mycotoxin dependent, Like, depending on which ones? Or do you have a protocol that you typically use in general, if they're positive for any of them? So I used to have a general
1: protocol. And then... Neil Nathan, Emily Givler, and I went down this big rabbit trail of which mold toxins get detoxed by which pathway, which phase two detoxification pathway. Uh huh. And we went through hundreds and hundreds of research articles. It took us about six months. Wow. And finally built out uh, from the research which mold toxins are using which um, pathway, so that we can really target these. These protocols for people. That's amazing. It it was really helpful because I'd had, you know, maybe half people working on mold detox were getting better and about half weren't. And some other others of us were seeing the same issue. Then when we started digging in, so I was using glutathione to support the detox pathways. But most of the mold toxins are detoxed by a phase two pathway most people haven't heard of called glucuronidation. Yeah, yeah. And that's the most common. So the glutathione pathway will take care of some mold toxins and then some of the other phase two pathways will take care of some, but that's the major one. And then different binders will bind better to different toxins. Mm-hmm. So we're laying this out and we're working hard this year to get that information, that's that research out to as many practitioners as we can.
0: That's great. Yeah, and you're right with glutathione. I mean, it's so helpful and it is good to maybe do that as a provocation. But you know, for so many people with sulfur issues, they may not even be able to handle glutathione and then they feel worse. So there could be a lot of issues with that as well.
1: Right. And I've got a blog post that steps through basically the high-level overview of this if people want to look for that on our blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll post the
0: link to that as well. That would be great. Yeah, mold is definitely a big thing. And obviously, I know we're talking about a lot of different things, Uh, but for everyone listening, you know, you could check out that. I also have two shows that are very in depth and specific on molds that you could check out as well, because this is definitely a big topic and it's really, really important to look at because it's going to be the underlying issue for so many different things, including. Um, mast cell activation syndrome, like Beth is saying. Um, Now, what about other supplements? Obviously, as you mentioned, if someone is low in the degrading enzymes, they could take those. Are there any other supplements that you find are overall helpful for histamine intolerance and mast cell activation syndrome?
1: Well, it depends on the person's case. And I can step you through kind of the general high level, what I often do But I had somebody ask me a few months ago to make a list of five supplements I always use in every case. And I tell you, I tried for weeks and weeks, and there wasn't a single supplement that I had that I didn't have somebody that reacted to. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because this is generally a super sensitive population. But kind of the big picture of what I generally do is I start people with something called pH Adjust. And this is very simple. It has um, baking soda, so so, sodium bicarbonate, some potassium bicarbonate, and it has just a little bit of magnesium carbonate. And then if the person has low low blood pressure, which is very common in mast cell activation, we'll add some unrefined sea salt. And that has a way of helping to calm down reactions. Something about the bicarbonates and the pH modulation along with Adding sodium, so when people go into a flare, they often dump sodium. Mm-hmm. So that that's the one that I commonly use. If people aren't sensitive to herbs, then I'll often use a Chinese skullcap extract called bakelin and then a product called peramine which is a perilla extract, and both of those have very good mast cell supporting properties. Now, if somebody is having a lot of the GI issues, you know, we talked about the diamine oxidase. And then I'll work on optimizing the gut functioning right You know, right off the bat. So usually some digestive enzymes, maybe some betaine HCL if it seems like a person has low stomach acid. And if there's constipation, always that's the first thing. Because if we've got constipation, we're not getting those toxins out. Yeah. They're going to recirculate. So that's a big trigger. For sure. Then from there, it really branches off based on... Did the mold toxins come back positive? Then we're going to go down that road and do some binders and some phase two supports and some antifungals. I do have about 20% of people. It's only 20% who in my practice don't have mold toxicity. About 80% do. Then we'll go from there and look at, well, do we have chemical toxins? And I'll start to step them through the other triggers. Do we have some chronic infections? What are they using for personal care products, cleaning products? Do we have hormone imbalances? So estrogen dominance can be a trigger. Not having enough cortisol can be a trigger. Zooming way, way back out again, though, you asked about supplements, and I kind of stayed in that supplement lane. But the first thing I do with everyone as well is parasympathetic and vagal nerve support. And so I'll have people, we'll talk about what kind of programs could work better for them, and I'll have them do things to help balance their nervous system and things that are really soothing and calming because of being in that fight-or-flight response, which so many of us are all of the time, Um, that's also a a trigger. Stress is a huge trigger for mast cell activation. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, that's so important. I'm so glad you're mentioning that. That's a big part of a lot of my protocols. Well, I don't even call them protocols because just like you, they're also extremely individualized for every case, but it's so hard to get anything in order. Like you said, when you're in fight or flight and if if your nervous system is upregulated, it's just not going to be able to function and send the right signals to all of
1: the organs to do their job so that is so important for sure exactly and the immune system and the nervous system are so most people don't don't know this but immune system nervous system I know you do are so intricately entwined that the mast cells will start reacting to a thought and I've done experiments where I've started ruminating on my symptoms to see what happened. And my um, master's research was in the area of psychoneuroimmunology. Mm-hmm. And I, I love these kinds of experiments. So I just started going round and round in circles about being stressed about my health and my symptoms. And um, we ended up with some water in our basement. So we had some aspergillus in the basement, which is my worst nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, So I just started going round and round about all of that. And within about two minutes, I could see the knuckles on my fingers start to swell. And that's one of my uh, major symptoms is hand and feet swelling. My hands will get really red and my joints will feel hot and tight. And that, that can start happening with just a couple minutes. And then if I take a deep breath and I shift myself over and I start talking myself through, you know, I'm doing great. I'm working really hard on my health. I've got lots of great support. I'm taking all the right supplements. I can watch the swelling just go away just with those thoughts. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's amazing. And do you know Mario Martinez? No, I don't.
0: Oh, he does a lot of uh, in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. I actually had him on the show a couple of times. He's a friend of mine and, you know, he just has done such fascinating research on all of this. And he was actually on a couple months back talking about during a lot of the the COVID stuff, uh, just certain things that we can do to modulate IGA, and you know, just different thoughts that we could think, or even you know, they did experiments where they would have people watch. Um, someone do good things, um, like videos of Mother Teresa doing, you know, good things for other people and for, you know, the planet and so on. And they had other people watch Hitler doing really bad things. And then after an hour or two hours of that, they measured their IGA. And it was just significantly higher in the Mother Teresa people than the people watching Hitler. It's just amazing how everything that we're exposed to plays such a big role.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for telling me about that. I'm going to go back and and listen to that on your podcast.
0: Yeah, and he has um, a couple of books. Um, One is called The Mind-Body Code, and um, he has a couple of others. I don't remember the names offhand, but it sounds like it's very much up your alley. So I think you'd love that. I would. I'd really love it. I'm going to go back and listen to that. So... For people that are dealing with this, um, what kind of hope can you give us? Because it sounds like it's complex and it's difficult. And, you know, like you said, a lot of these people are very sensitive. So it's just really hard to get the right balance. But um, I know that obviously it's something that is attainable because you did it
1: with yourself. Right. I, I told a little bit of my story, but it really was an absolute nightmare. Um, there was an entire year where I couldn't work at all and I had horrible anxiety and panic attacks and dark depressions. And I got down to, if I counted salt, pepper, and every herb I could tolerate, I had 20 foods. If I took the herbs and salt and pepper out, I had about 12 foods that I could tolerate without feeling horribly sick. I was really underweight and wow, uh, just a mess. I mean, I couldn't hardly read for very long. And I couldn't find anybody to figure it out. And I was doing this when there wasn't anyone really specializing in this. But information started coming out. And um, I started piecing things together for myself and was able to go back to graduate school and get a master's and a doctorate. And they run a really busy practice. And, you know, I'm not symptom free and I may never be but worlds, worlds different than where I was. And I would say I've recovered about 90% of my health, which for me is amazing because now I have a, a life that I love living yeah. and a full life and a rich life. And I see this over and over in in my practice. So the man I told you about with the severe insomnia he just told me it's been a very long road for him because it took him a long time to get his house tested and to get out of mold. So he finally just got that completed about a month ago and told me that now he's sleeping longer and longer and more refreshed and feeling better. He started to turn around. He was one of the most severe cases that I've had. And I mentioned the the young girl that had the anaphylaxis. She's completely symptom-free now. And a lot of times when people are very young, that's easy to turn around. Um, I still have some symptoms because I still have some mold toxicity. I had very severe and long-term exposures. I'm still getting that out. But there's so much that we can do. And more practitioners are becoming aware of this, are learning about it. I've got lots of free resources on the blog. We're going to open up new um, client spots towards the end of the year. Uh, for people that need more one-on-one attention. And then I've got some other things I'm launching because not everybody can get an appointment. Either um, we're full or they have a practitioner that really, we really like working with or they don't have the resources for those kinds of appointments. So I've got a supplements class, um, supplement master class for mass activation that's going to launch this year. Oh, that's great. And a book coming out. And then working on um, practitioner training for next year and getting more and more people up to speed on how to address this. But people can really get themselves started with a lot of the resources that are there on the blog for free already. And then we've got free Facebook Lives on Mondays at 2 o'clock Eastern that people can join also at the Mass Cell 360 Facebook page.
0: Great. So they could go to your website and get the link to Facebook or just go to Facebook uh, Mass out 360 and find you that way, right? Exactly. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll post that. Well, you have been busy, 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 but I am so grateful and thankful that you um, have all of these resources because like you said, there's not a lot of education and I think it's so wonderful you're doing a practitioner training. I'm excited to learn even more. I've been getting into this a lot myself, but there's always so much to learn. So I think that that's great. And, you know, I think just with that hope, I mean, I'm the same way. I think so many people just can't help but feel hopeless because no one's ever listened to them or was able to put it together. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of my show is really to show people that there are so many different areas. And I'm just so glad to hear about all of the things that you've been able to accomplish with your health and I mean 90% better from coming from a very very big place that's amazing and then all the patients that you help so thank you so much for all the work that you do and thank you so much for being here and providing all of this information which I know is going to help so many people
1: thank you and I love your show so happy to be here with you and really just love the work you're doing as well and glad that we can support each other in this as you can see Histamines can
0: play a role in a multitude of symptoms, and this was the case for Rachel. To help her, I first removed high histamine foods from her diet and added a DAO enzyme to help her better process them. She noticed a significant reduction in her rashes and psoriasis right away. Within about two weeks, her skin was much clearer. Her headaches also decreased in that short period of time, so we were definitely onto something. What is important to remember, though, is that issues with histamines are usually secondary to other imbalances, and our environment, as well as what's going on in the gut, are often big underlying factors, so we had to look there. We ran an organic acid test and a stool test and saw that she had quite a bit of candida, which is a yeast. She was already eating well and didn't overconsume starches or sugars, so we had to work on eradicating it through antifungal nutrients. I used GMI-Crobex, FC-Cidal, and Tricycline, followed by SF-722 for candida eradication. And then I put her on probiotics, glutamine, and enterovite for healing. As we were doing this, we also ran a mycotoxin test. And saw that she had several elevated mycotoxins. So these are mold toxins. So we knew that mold was in her body and we needed to look at mold exposure. She suspected her apartment had issues because she saw spots on her bathroom ceiling. Thankfully though, her lease was almost up and she's actually been planning on moving to a different neighborhood either way so we didn't need to deal with remediation and then the candida supplements she was taking were perfect as antifungals to help deal with past mold exposure. We then used molecular hydrogen and ultra binder to help bind what was left in the body and support the mitochondria which can often be affected by mold. After six months on the protocol, Rachel had clear skin and much better digestion and sleep. After the healing that we did, she was actually able to go back to eating some tomatoes and avocados, those are super high histamine foods, and she didn't have any issues. She does find that she needs to be mindful and doesn't overdo high histamine foods, but she no longer needs to completely avoid them like before. If Rachel sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And make sure you subscribe to the show because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. And as always, when it comes to your health issues, I just want to tell you that please don't give up. There are answers out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you on the next episode of Health Mystery Solved.
1: All information,
0: content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute
1: for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.